0: Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today.
1: Well, welcome back to Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. I'm Don Payne, your host. And first, let me offer congratulations to all of our recent graduates, even though Our commencement ceremonies are postponed until August 15. We are proud of you, and we look forward to seeing how you'll be able to jump into the next chapter of God's redemptive work through whatever your calling is. So congratulations to all of you. Around this nation and maybe the broader world, people are finding very creative ways to recognize and to thank those who serve sacrificially and serve at some risk during the coronavirus and the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, we're honored, very honored this week to interact with three of our Denver Seminary graduates who are among those whose work routinely puts them in contact with COVID-19 patients and uh, also the ripple effects of this deadly disease. We have a lot to learn from them, and I'm eager for you listeners to get to know them. So I want to welcome to Engage360, Gina Graves. Uh, Gina is Director of Pastoral Care at Swedish Medical Center in Englewood, Colorado, Mike Guthrie, who is Director of Spiritual Care, Volunteer Services, and Clinical Ethics at Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Denver, and Diane Kameen, who is a chaplain at Julia Temple Healthcare Center, which is a memory care facility in Englewood. So welcome to each of you to the podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Don. We're uh, very glad to have you here. First of all, uh, I'd like to have each of you give us a brief snippet of your journey into chaplaincy ministry uh, and include when you graduated from Denver Seminary and how you came to serve in all of this. Gina, do you want to start?
2: Certainly. Um, I uh, was going to seminary and uh, Dr. McCormick uh, talked me into changing my um, uh, degree path to chaplaincy and and then uh, she threw me into a semester of CPE uh, where I was at Porter Hospital and absolutely uh, knew at that moment that that's what I was that was what I was supposed to be doing and did my residency my CPE residency shortly after and then went to work uh, um, as the director of pastoral care at Swedish uh, in two thousand six seventeen, I think
1: Mike Mike Guthrie tell us about your journey
2: um, yeah, thanks,
3: Don. So I was, uh, I graduated in 2004 uh, for Denver Seminary when it was at the, uh, at the old campus. And while I was uh, beginning my MDiv journey, I got an MDiv general. I'm ordained in the um, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And while I was on my journey, uh, it was during 9 uh, 11 occurred. And I have a brother who is, uh, was at the time flying active duty missions into Baghdad and a sister-in-law who's graduating from the Naval Academy. And that began a journey for me from a discernment and prayer standpoint, as far as what my pastoral role would be um, regarding 9-11 and, you know, the events that unfolded thereafter. And so I joined the Navy Chaplain Candidate Program and then I ended up, separating from the Navy because of a heart condition. And so I've been a hospital chaplain now for 16
1: years. Good. Diane Kameen.
0: Nice.
1: Okay.
0: I, my story's a little different. Um, I had no intention of going to seminary. Um, I met Dr. Jan McCormick in my doctor's office. I happened to be working for my doctor and she invited me to come to a class and I told her, no, I was too busy. And then she invited me to her office and we just had a conversation. I have worked with the elderly population for 32 years. My undergraduate studies are music therapy. And so um, after talking with Dr. Jan McCormick, I ended up, you know, just kind of dipping my toe in the water. And um, five years later, um, received my degree. I graduated in 2019 and music therapy and chaplaincy are such a beautiful marriage when it comes to dementia. So I feel like God has just placed me in the perfect place to be able to share what he has given me.
1: And you're all, I think I mentioned this, you're all in a, your, your facility is entirely memory care, correct? It is
0: entirely, yes. We have a 128 bed facility and it's all dementia and that includes the Alzheimer's type. Okay.
1: <laughs> Great. Wonderful to have you here.
0: Thank you.
1: Well, the latest figures I've seen show that in the US, almost one and three-quarter million confirmed cases of COVID-19 and over a hundred thousand deaths. In Colorado alone, the f- latest figure shows about twenty-four thousand confirmed cases and over thirteen hundred deaths. Now I know people debate the figures. But however the figures run out, it's, it's staggering any way you count it. And those numbers can sometimes be so overwhelming that we we get sort of anesthetized to them, I, I think. So we'd love to have each of you give us a brief uh, view of all of this from your front row seat in your installation. What do you... Get, just give us a few high points on... What you're seeing and then we'll we'll dig into that a little bit further as we go. Diane?
0: So like I said earlier, the facility I work at, Juliet Temple Healthcare Center, we are strictly dementia. Um, COVID-19 entered our building in um, the beginning of April. We um, are, because we are a dementia facility, it is very, very difficult to um, isolate people who are sick you know, it's very challenging, what do you do? You can't, you can't, you know, put them in their rooms and tell them to stay there, they don't understand. Mm-hmm. And so COVID-19 spread very fast throughout our building. And we did the best that we can with PPE. We, um, we, we did the best we could as staff just to um, have the, um, the screenings done at the door. We, we made sure that everyone had proper PPE when they went to each neighborhood. Just very difficult with this population of people to be able to keep them six feet apart. Although we, we try as best as we can to and sometimes we're able to, but it's very difficult. And in two and a half weeks, we lost 22 residents. Come on. They died of dementia and, 20 and 22 people in two and a half weeks and two staff members. Um, as you can imagine, it was um, devastating, yeah. just devastating for our whole building, all of us just grieving these losses. Um, very, It's been a very, very difficult time for us, but we are on the mend. We are beginning to heal and so very, very grateful.
1: Good. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. that uh, I read in mid-May an article uh, reporting on the deaths in the state VA hospital, particularly among memory loss patients, because of the difficulties involved in in helping them utilize proper social protocols yes it 's like very you're...
0: difficult yeah right. Right. One, one of the things I want to add that that is really kind of interesting I, I love this story because it says a lot about human touch um, one of our one of our neighborhoods. Um, the residents are in their last stages of dementia. And so they, they walk around their ambulatory. They walk around and they hold each other's hands. And they like to sit together on the couches. Well, when COVID hit our building, we, we took all of the couches off this neighborhood, put the couches in a secure area, and we put chairs six feet apart. And guess where the residents ended up? they ended up in bed with each other oh and it just shows that that human touch is so important to us and so important to, that they needed that human touch. And so they're like, if we're not going to get it in these chairs, we're going to go, you know, we'll they just, they needed that.
1: Wow. Yeah. So. That's that revisiting. Mm-hmm. Mike, from your uh, front row seat, what are you seeing?
3: Well, you know, I think, uh, our hospital was ac- acutely aware of what was going on across the, the world and, and watching it as it made its way. So, um, you know, we have a, a process in place where we, you know, pull up an incident command that begins to look at processes, that begins to identify where we need to institute protective measures, our PPE, everything was getting sort of centralized stockpiled and assess, because um, in some senses we had the luxury of, of looking at the news that was coming out of Italy and, and some of the news that was coming out of New York that was really a, informing us regarding our protocols. Um, and so, and, and for me particularly as a chaplain, I was looking at my team um, and helping to prepare my team with regard to what we all needed to do from a precautionary standpoint. How we were going to respond for supporting um, COVID 19 patients, what we were doing to protect ourselves for a PPE standpoint. Um, I got very involved in our visitor restriction policy because one of the, you know, some of the stories that I heard coming out of New York um, and, and in Italy were that patients were dying alone. And so I worked closely with our leadership and hospital administration to identify. Some restrictions are, so. uh, you know, when we had to go into lockdown, uh, we we stopped all volunteer activities, we stopped all, you know, visitation into the hospital, Um, but I was allowed to kind of work in some exceptions to that around end-of-life protocol, particularly for Catholic patients that may have needed last rites or sacrament of the sick, as well as for patients that were actively dying that we knew that that were in that trajectory, that we could allow at least one or two family members to be present um, at the bedside. We did proper PPE precautions for them so that they could be at the bedside, um, and that was, you know, that was really important to us, allowing that dignity piece for our patients. Uh, administratively, you know, making sure that you know the checkpoint, you know, the the in the emergency room that the screeners knew who the person was and that we were allowing them access and having a couple there in the emergency room to meet them, to then escort them to the room and support them um, as well in the process and their grieving. Um, so that was, you know, that was that, that was definitely one of the pieces. And then for me personally, making the decision on my team who was comfortable actually visiting, you know, co- with COVID-19 patients if there was anybody on my team that wasn't comfortable with that process and how we were making concessions regarding that. Um, I moved away from a more professional kind of button button up shirt and slacks to wearing scrubs so that when I would go and visit with patients that had COVID-19, I could then at the end of the day change out of those clothes and leave them at the hospital and come home and not worry about know, bringing those, you know, bringing that home with me.
1: So, right. right. um, So
3: that was, you know, kind of, if you were to look at logistically, those were, those were some of the things that I took into consideration.
1: Complicated things, complicated things in many ways, huh? Mm -hmm. Gina, how about you from your seat?
2: I think one of the, um, the most difficult things in the very beginning was there was so much, so much data that was coming at us from different directions. And, and then the next day it would all change, and the next day it would be something new that would come out, um, uh, say from the CDC. And so, tr- keeping everybody fluid and and um, on board and was 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 a wild ride in itself. Um, Uh, Because it was, you know, we we want the answers and then we want to be able to go perform that and there just didn't seem to be there at the very beginning. uh, There were so many changes going on that, that um, all of I think a lot of the staff um, uh, Felt that, uh, you know, like the ship was on 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 uh, tall waves that we were being thrown about at some points and and then when the when the visitor restriction hit, then that was kind of the double whammy, of not it was painful for not just the chaplains, but it was it was hard on on staff as well to not allow family to come in and uh, to be on the COVID, especially the COVID units, and we did make exceptions for uh, end of life for non COVID patients, uh, but that was hard on the on the staff, knowing that it was hard on the family. And, um, you know, you think about, think about not having visitors there, but until that happened, I'm not sure that we fully understood um, what that would feel like, just to watch the families not being there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think um, one of the things that I've, it dawned on me a couple of weeks ago that the messaging for this has been all wrong and it, it shouldn't have been um, social distancing. It should have been physical distancing. Social connectedness. Yeah, and I've that heard we that should have
1: recently, and that caught my attention.
2: Yeah, we we need, to, um, and we still need touch, and that's you know, like Diane mentioned, that uh, um, that's that's really kind of that's critical to ourselves as people. But, um staying connected has um, has has been a, a theme that. Uh, trying to keep everyone connected and on the same page throughout different layers of of whether it be how we treat our our um, how people get treated medically to to how we how we let people in the hospital. It's just it's been a very layered um, a layered policy, so to speak.
1: Let me follow up on that that image of layers because perhaps this is routine for you, but I hear, at least three layers in the type of care, the type of ministry each of you are are giving. There is obviously a layer of ministry to patients. There's a layer of involvement with patients' families, and there's a layer of involvement to your staff. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: What what have been maybe some of the most demanding or complex challenges in any of those layers? Or has the ministry changed in any of those layers for you?
0: I think for me, one of the biggest challenges, especially with staff, we have, you know, we have many um, CNAs and nurses and I had people, I was, you know, things that I just wasn't expecting to happen to me as a chaplain that happened was they, I would have staff members come into my office, they would close my door And they would just weep. They were fearful. There was so much fear when it first hit our building. And especially because we lost a staff member who was well loved by everyone. And it was just devastating. So they're grieving. They're fearful of this virus. And for them just to to be coming into my office and just weeping, and they're saying, my family wants me to quit my job. And that's very real. It's very real. Their families are like, why are you still working there? You're putting you're putting our family at risk for you to be working at this facility. And and you know they, they had to they had to grapple with that.
1: Yeah, they're getting pressure from multiple angles, aren't they?
0: They really are. And and they're fearful themselves because you know the 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 virus is is so easily um, contracted and so they're they're yeah, they're fearful. And then I had some come in who are questioning God. They're questioning God, questioning their faith, and, and just weeping in my office. Um, that was a huge challenge as a chaplain. And yet I learned so much in it the, the presence of God, and that we carry with us the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. And sometimes just being present with someone who's fearful and just listening is huge. It is huge. And praying with them if they want prayer, which a lot of them would have never asked for prayer before, you know, or asking for prayer. And just the beauty that that was in that. It
1: sounds like that level of ministry, that layer of ministry to staff has really expanded then.
0: Yes, it really expanded at our facility. Another thing really quick that happened at my facility. I was not expecting. And it is another one of those layers is we had so much going on that there was so much fear that, that I started a prayer group. I'm like, there were two people who, you know, were believers and they said to me, you know, can we go pray? And I'm like, by all means. And so we started gathering in the courtyard and more and more people started coming. Very Mm -hmm. beautiful. Um, presence of God that I was not expecting to have, you know, fellow co-workers to come together and we're praying for our facility. It was beautiful.
1: Mm -hmm. And for listeners who who may not know uh, what the backstory to all of that, when you're working even as a chaplain in a pluralistic or a secular religious setting, you have to be very, very careful about how you initiate those kinds of things, right? Which Mm -hmm. many people may not be aware of that, but it's, it's not like working in a church.
0: You're right, Don. You know, one of the things that I was also doing was send, I would send out letters. I would send out prayers via email. I would print them up for staff members. And I I did. I, I had to think very carefully through because we do have different faith traditions in our staff members. And, yes, it's, it's challenging. And yet it was, it was um very beautiful to be able to just come together all these different faiths, and be praying.
1: Yeah. Mike, Gina, what, uh, what have you seen in terms of shifts or expansion of any of those layers of ministry?
3: Well, one of the, one of the things that I did was, um, I started it on St. Patrick's day, but I realized that St. Patrick's day was coming around in the midst of all this and everybody was so focused on the COVID-19 preparations that people were beginning to to lose sight of some of the holidays and the traditions. And so I started this, you know, basically what I called a mindfulness moment um, that I would send out via email to staff because a lot of our staff that were not essential were sent home and a lot of people were working from home and that was very difficult for them. And I was trying to figure out how I was reaching you know, staff in the facility, certainly I would round on them, but those that were not in the facility. And so creating this email uh, mindfulness moment, and I, and I would send that out daily and, and, and still do as a way of just helping reframe people around concepts of gratitude and compassion and forgiveness. Um, what, I, you know, what I would call, as you said, to address some of the pluralistic concerns um, from a spiritual standpoint, I was calling it higher meaning and and really basically calling people to various ways of how they were considering um, resiliency for themselves in the midst of the stress that they were experiencing Um, and then during hospital week which is earlier this month um, we have a tradition where we would go around and bless the hands of staff and because of you know we have the same social distancing requirements in the facility and so there was no no touching. So I did a virtual blessing that I offered staff that we put through Facebook. And it's been interesting. to have gotten really positive comments. People have, you know, sent emails back that I was completely unexpecting a response. And they were talking about how encouraging that was. And I think so many people are feeling isolated that for us as pastors, finding creative ways to reach into that isolation and support them. Yeah, uh, we, we had two staff members that that died. Um, one of which was was I was very close with, um, and that was really really hard for me and um, raise you know certain questions for myself and raise questions for staff and you know supporting them in the midst of that having them see some of my vulnerability around that I think strengthened um, just kind of a collegial bond right. because I think chaplaincy what's unique at least certainly. Uh, military chaplains can attest to this: is that chaplains are in the trenches alongside of um, those that are caring, and 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 as hospital chaplains, we're right alongside people who may not go to church, but um, you know are looking for answers, as Diane was pointing out, and and we have a you know a pastoral role and sensitivity and support in the midst of being able to and and really. Uh, support them in the midst of that, that comes from a trust.
1: Yeah. It's, it's frontline trench work just as much as in the military versions of chaplaincy. Gina, before we started the recording today, you were mentioning something about how some of your own vulnerability with your staff had really opened doors of opportunity with them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Don. We, I started doing a uh, chaplain's corner email um, almost like a, a mini homily um, that would go out either once, sometimes twice a week. And I tried to tailor it to what I was feeling. Um, maybe not necessarily always in the hospital, but you know, everybody that works in the hospital, you've got the stuff that's going on in the hospital, but then you've got what's going on at home with your family and you you sit and watch the news like everybody else does. And you see all of the the fear and anxiety that's that is present in all of those different layers as well so everybody in the hospital had had their own different layers within themselves Um, and I tried to tailor um little mini homilies so to speak to to address some of those fears as 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 they would roll in Um, maybe one week it was anxiety and maybe the next week um it was on fear Um, there were times where um it was just um No, nobody understood what was going on and it was it was good to be I would always try to tell a personal story um, uh, Sometimes more personal than what I uh, Probably would have told under any other circumstances, but I I, I understood that For them, for the staff to open up to me that I had to earn the right To hear their stuff and I earned that right by being vulnerable with them Um, And that has that has really helped when we, we've been talking in our facility, we've been talking about self-care and resiliency uh, for over a year. I'm very thankful for the conversations that we've had over that year because it, it, it set a foundation yeah, for, the conver- for the conversations that we're having now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if we hadn't have had that, uh, you know, it probably would have really sideswiped, this would have really sideswiped a lot of the staff.
1: Well, wow, thank God for that. Mm-hmm. Hey, I want to uh, ask about some of the ethical issues that any of you might face related to COVID-19. And Mike, I know that clinical ethics is in your actual job description, but it right. seems like, it, you know, end of life issues. Uh, Mike, you use the, the phrase aggressively dying, and mm-hmm. those tend to be code words for uh, some of the the really tenuous, precarious uh, human issues, the life issues that then give rise to really tough ethical considerations that uh, families have to navigate. And in one sense, hospital chaplains, maybe chaplains of many sorts are confronting those ethical issues fairly routinely, but I can only imagine that that has been intensified. Some of those ethical questions you've had to confront and navigate and help others navigate What's that been like?
3: Um, well, I know for me, you know one of the things that I've come to realize, you know, in the sixteen years of doing chaplaincy and clinical ethics is that most, if not ethical, dilemmas are not black and white. they're They're very gray. Um, and so these difficult bedside situations can't really be addressed with some sort of simple, you know blanket, absolute biblical imperative and and you There's know
1: right trade-offs yeah. left and right
3: right you know we want things to be black and white um but mm-hmm. but you know so much in what we have with regard to um, medical technology and advance it's very difficult for us to you know it's very gray and so and as we watched you know COVID 19 sweep and you know the the world getting closer to denver i think we were as a medical community Figuring out how we were going to respond to the surge if it overwhelmed our critical care resources and, and, and forced to make difficult resource allocation decisions. Um, and so that was definitely one of the ethical challenges that were presented. And then, you know, in the um, in the event that as the disease, as the disease progressed for patients and that person who was COVID-19 positive needed to have um, you know, CPR resuscitation when their heart stopped, um, if it didn't prove to save the person's life and, and put the staff at risk for uh, COVID-19 mm-hmm. exposure, we had to you know, look at what do we do in the event that we know that coding a patient isn't gonna be beneficial to them and um, it puts the staff at risk, do we not code them? Um, and, and how do we address that? How do we communicate that to families who aren't present? And so, you know, for me, actually, it reminded me of an article that I read that was back in 2012 that actually it, it says, can bioethics be evangelical? And it talked about some of the, um, you know, the ways that we go about understanding scripture, um, understanding things like the image of God, and how we approach human dignity and the worth of every person. Um, how do we go about doing that in relation to clinical ethics? So, um, you know, I worked with, and Gina's familiar with this, but work with our hospital and our sister hospitals to craft the policy and procedures around triage response um, and, and working very tirelessly to take into account every single person their patient, the patient, the the family members, um, medical staff and professionals involved and and their human dignity and how do we go about, you know, making some of the challenging decisions um, in a way that respects human dignity. Now, thankfully, we didn't have to do that, at least not so far that Colorado entered into a crisis standards of care surge. Um, But I think that definitely we are forced with these ethical challenges each day and how we you communicate uh, the human dignity um, piece and how we honor each human person, not just the person in the bedside, but the staff caring for them. Um, you know, and those are things that are lived out day by day in case, oh, by case.
1: This is one of the areas that generates the most respect in my own life for those in chaplaincy arenas who are dealing with those murky murky ethical considerations on a pretty routine basis because while to your point mike while we will affirm absolutes such as the dignity of the human person made in god's image when it comes down to the practicalities of the trade-offs of at what point or points is it worth doing or not doing x for a very um, questionable outcome, those are simply gut-wrenching considerations, gut-wrenching places to walk through. Right. Theologically, I, 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 keep, I keep coming back to the, the need for us to thicken our theology of God's grace to live with the trade-offs involved. Because at, you know, anytime you make a decision or somebody else makes a decision based on your own uh, counsel and input, that decision, because of the murkiness involved, can always, always be second-guessed, right? Absolutely.
3: Yeah, absolutely. That's
1: just uh, really, really difficult to live with without a really thick theology of the grace of God. Mm -hmm. Uh, Diane, uh, Gina? Uh, any Anything to add to that in terms of how this has heightened the the, the tension perhaps, of some ethical considerations?
0: You know, when I think of um, attention ethically, and this is probably quite a bit different from what Mike shared, but i I think of a story, um, something that happened in um, my facility. As we all know, we are to be social distancing. And I was called to um, one of our neighborhoods. When they say we need the chaplain now, (laughs) I drop what I'm doing and I go and I just pray this little prayer for the Lord to go before me. And they wanted me on this neighborhood. And I went to the neighborhood and they were all grieving the loss of this this first employee that we had lost. They had all just heard that he had died. And so you can imagine what this neighborhood was like. The staff were devastated. Mm-hmm. They loved this staff member. And this housekeeper, we're all, in our, we're all decked out in our PPE, and this little housekeeper, she comes running towards me and just falls into my arms. And in that moment, It's like, we're supposed to be social distancing, but uh, I did not. We're people and love, God's love, (laughs) rules over all, over all rules. (laughs) And I just held her as she sobbed. She literally was sobbing and weeping on me. to myself afterwards, after I pondered that, because my initial reaction, of course, was to hold her, even though we're supposed to be social distancing. But I just held her. And afterwards, I thought, biblically and theologically, Jesus was right there with the untouchable. He touched lepers. He touched those that others wouldn't touch. And just for in that moment in time, she needed she needed somebody to hold her. And although we were not to be doing that, I did that. It was one of those times where love overruled the rules.
1: You know, I'm curious what each of you have learned through all of this. What does all of this have to teach the rest of us? Maybe another way of coming at that. Are, are there any popular misconceptions that need to be corrected um mike yeah
3: so so, um when we went into you know uh, safer at home and you know restrictions were put into place i started thinking about books i wanted to read and um i picked up by recommendation of a really good friend wendell Berry's book jaber crow and it's it's a it's just it's a phenomenal book as you know you read about the character and he's narrating his life but it's interesting because he accounts when he was in college and he's studying to sort of follow what he this is call to be a preacher and he reaches this watershed moment where he goes into the office of one of his professors and he runs through this laundry list of theological struggles and Don I'm sure you've had one or two students come into your office and do a similar thing during your tenure but The professor responds to him by saying, you have been given questions to which you cannot be given answers. You will have to live them out perhaps a little at a time. Mm -hmm. And then the character says, how long is that going to take? And the professor says, I don't know, as long as you live perhaps. And one of the things that it's taught me is to be, um, to have a greater acceptance of ambiguity Mm -hmm. Um, and to trust God and what he's doing in my life, even when I don't have the answers. Okay. Um, And then learning as a pastor that in these challenging times, it's not the answer that what matters most, but it's about the commitment of standing alongside people that are dealing with very difficult medical challenges, listening to them, affirming their struggles, and then, really, honestly, helping them not feel alone in the midst of it—it's that incarnational presence, um, and just being being comfortable with not having the answers.
1: Yeah, you know, it's always possible, isn't it, to to be faithful even if we don't have a specific answer. We I think we have to detach those two things, those two concepts. Faithfulness right. does not depend on having answers, because if it does, then we're all uh, we're all in pretty deep weeds, because we don't have a lot of answers, particularly to the questions that scream at us. What is, what have you learned from all of this?
2: I think the biggest thing was being able to think outside the box and be able to pivot. Um, when, when we get curve balls to be able to pivot and be fluid, allow for changes and not, and, and just keep working through them, being able to spend a lot of attention with my staff, um, was very was very important and the feedback that i got from that that was that was time that was well spent there were things that i ended up doing that i would have you know 6 months earlier i would not have been comfortable doing so the 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 fluid piece the being able to pivot and and do things a little differently in order to to bless family members that couldn't come to the hospital or to bless the patients and the staff was, was just really, was really important.
1: Well, and I'm sure in some cases you do that at some risk, whether it's personal health risk or institutional, I'm sure there are risks involved in trying to care well. And it sounds like that's part of the, the nimbleness. Diane, uh, what have you learned? What, are the, what does this need to teach the rest of us?
0: You know, there's a lot that that I've learned. The thing that I think I would love to communicate to our listeners that I have learned is being present. Being present with the person I'm with. There is so much going on in the midst of all of this, and I've really learned as a chaplain to be present with the family member, the resident that I'm with. I've done a lot of Zoom sessions, a lot of Facetimes with families. Being present, and especially especially with death and dying, just um, being being with these people who are grieving. A lot of people will ask me, "Well, I never know what to say um, after you know someone's lost a loved one," and and I just kind of talk about how important it is to just listen, to just be present. Sometimes I think most of the time people are not going to remember down the road that you probably said to them after their loved one passed, but they are going to remember that you were present with them. It's that ministry of presence, kind of like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asked his friends to, to stay with him and to be present with him. And I think that that's what we're called to do, is to be present with that person that we are with and, and um, help them through. Just be there.
1: Yeah, and there's plenty of experience to validate that point. Yes. I want to just give a just a deep thanks to each of you, not only for appearing on the podcast and giving us your time, your experiences, and your insights, especially after a full day of work already at the time we're recording this. But thanks for being among the many who are really putting a lot on the line, not only with your own health, but putting putting your own inner inner world and your own faith and putting uh lots of things on the line that uh, are not easily navigated. and on behalf of anybody and everybody who might be listening to this i want to give a shout out to to you we're grateful to those of you who listen whatever your relationship is to denver seminary we're uh we're grateful to you and for the superb, and I mean superb, Engage 360 team. We make this happen every week. Mr. DeSanto, Krista Ebert, Gritsa Smith, Tessa Thompson, and Andrea Layen. I'm Bob Payne, and if you found anything here beneficial, we hope that you'll give us a rating or a review wherever you listen to us, and maybe even tell somebody else about the podcast. So we hope you'll be safe, and you'll, you'll join us again next week. So from Denver Seminary and Engage 360, take care.